0: Green Crow Inn, a novel by Derek A. Kamal, read by Kelman Friedman. Chapter 8. Room 21. The time for falling markets came and went. The breezes that had blown in the cool autumn air would blow them away just as swiftly, and tow in their stead the still, cold feel of winter. Before the arrival of such cold, the fall harvest came in many deliveries showed up from a variety of agriculturalists, including Pram the farmer. The harvest was modest in the lands about Tila Hill, according her. She and Top the horse had arranged their own delivery of produce. When they had, the farmer leaned against her cart in philosophical fashion and mused on the modesty of the harvest. Time was, she said, that these parts might grant double or treble yield. You remember, Kalka? I do not. Replied the innkeeper, who was helping unload the delivery. "'Well,' said Pram, as she gazed at the sky with contemplation, "'modest yield or no, the cellarer himself had difficulty making space in the larder. "'Parsnips, pole beans, carbuncle root, and a generous variety of greens "'all needed the cool cellar air to stay fresh as possible in the coming weeks, "'and Furrier had his work cut out for him. "'Thankfully, I was there to assist on that particular day. "'Oy! No bid! Give us a hand!' You're no help at all, chided a rough and trollish voice. I sniffed and regained focus. What? A flying head of lettuce told me exactly what. I caught it before it could do serious damage and pivoted, finding a good place for it on the shelf behind me. I shivered in the cool cellar. It smelled of must and raw earth. What was the name of that farmer? I asked the troll absently. He shoved a small crate of radishes my way and said flatly, "Pram." no i know i i know who pram is the last word must have sounded odd accented as it was by my straining to lift the crate i mean the farmer who sold us the parsnips i honestly have no notion said furrier it was his turn to be distracted for he was scanning the shelves and crannies of his underworld now with a journal and a pointed bit of coal between his greenish fingers eager to please if only to get information I began moving a small basket of squash. She had a fabulous red cloak. It reminded me of Nandaya. Do you recall Nandaya? I often find myself thinking of her. Don't touch that one, you pillock! He snarled. Apologies, I said. Off you, Pop. Go and see to your horses. They're well seen to. I'm telling you to bugger off. Find some other trolls' business to muck about in your busybody. I was completely taken aback and, for once, stunned silent. My instinct was, naturally, to push back to find just what he was talking about, but self-control stepped in and I stepped aside, backing away to the stairs and up into the inn. I stood in the kitchen, collecting myself. Kalka was there, rolling dough and tending to something sweet-smelling that boiled on the stove. She paid me no heed. Furrier is out of control, I said lightly. Oh. Calco remained fixed on her cuisine. He was raging at me, just now, downstairs. Well, you are an acquired taste, I suppose. She at least turned and winked to ease her stinging words. I wonder. Seems he's been having a go-through since we ran into those trolls at market. How's that? A go-through, as in he's going through something, emotionally, I expect. Trolls and their emotions, I muttered. I felt a chill of regret as realization took hold. What should I have done that day instead of nudging those trolls towards Foyer? Nothing, that's what. Then I said more clearly, If that is the case, he is certainly acting as if the fault was mine. Was it? Kalka stirred the pot again. I was too stunned to speak. Just work it out with him, or leave it, she suggested. Thankfully, the gruff echo of a throat clearing itself bounced in from the bar. Kalka sighed. Mind my fruit doesn't burn. I lunged at the stove top and grabbed the spoon eagerly. The innkeeper strode out of the kitchen. Nayurgi, you're still here, I heard her say. There, in the shimmering brew of partridge berries, sugar, and whatever else, the faintest of reflections could be seen. My dark hair, now gone more shaggy, my wispy beard, the low-hanging fruit for Furrier's mockeries, the dark circles under my eyes sagging nearly to my pointed cheeks. I scratched the growth on my face. It had begun to itch. The crow and Nawari slowly warming up to me was good. Great, in fact. But my furtive departure from Calaheim tainted it. It was an ever-present shame piled upon my own latent insecurities, not to mention this new development with Furrier, and I had no way to amend it. Not yet, anyway. It all left me feeling anxious. Perhaps I could trust in the inn and its safety to be my medicine. Perhaps... Room 21 is a ruddy mess. The clanking of tray against table spun me about. It was Sumi kind. Her usually kempt ponytail was falling down in wisps about her forehead and making her look more flustered than usual. Oh, I am sorry, Torson. I was expecting our employer, she said in the most adorable way possible. No worries, I said, smiling. It is making me so aggravated that these blowhards from the Capitals are behaving like I am some kind of slave to them, not refined guests at all. ''We can be aggravating,'' I said calmly. ''Oh!'' I assumed she blushed, but kept myself fixed on the simmering fruit, which was becoming a thick reduction. ''It's okay,'' I added, hoping the anxiety I felt did not creep into my voice. ''Which capital?'' ''I am not sure. Should I be finding out?'' ''Um, no, I'm not concerned. I was concerned, but I kept it to myself.'' sumi appeared to intuit what was happening and offered some words of comfort they are being large cities no i am sure not everyone is knowing everybody else in any case they should be down soon you can be speaking to them maybe then she walked away as if on cue furrier appeared in the doorway to the cellar feeling no apprehension i left at the opportunity to produce some goodwill furrier i want to say no said the troll and also walked away fine i murmured face," he shouted from outside. I shook my head. The droll tones of Naergi arguing something with Kalka and then Sumi provided the background noise for my fruit-stirring, which would perhaps continue for perpetuity. I refused to allow myself to mentally drift, to fret over who could be in Room 21, if they knew me, knew my father, or were in fact looking for me. But the pressure built and rose inescapably, My imagination ran wild. When I could take no more, I turned for the stairs, my legs swinging forward of their own volition. I had to find out. All became dreamy and blurred. Images of stairs flitted past me, and I felt a burning in my legs. Now I was on the third floor, and now the narrow hallway that spanned the back of the inn between wings. Coming to myself, sweating and anxious, I realized I was on the wrong floor. It was a moment to consider, to reflect on what I was about to do and ultimately to stop. I did not. Another blur, and I was before room 21. No one had seen me. With shaking hand, I tried the door, and it opened. Room 21 had the look of any other room in the Green Crow, or any other room in any other inn in living memory. The flooring was of dark stained wood, slatted nicely in an octagonal pattern, atop which sat the usual furnishings left in an unusually messy state, an unmade bed with a lustrous carved headboard, a dresser with half the drawers left open, a desk for writing scattered with parchment, and a few bits of luggage left open and strewn. The clapboard walls were of lighter shade and tastefully decorated with a few unremarkable paintings. There was a tree, and sconces holding unlit candles. As I surveyed, I saw nothing, no clear giveaway of who these people could be, or where they were from. I thought again of leaving the room, of cutting my losses and escaping potential detection. But if these people were somehow sent by my father, or even only knew of him, perhaps in a business capacity, it could not be borne. I would not be discovered. So I rummaged. Mustering as much haste as I could, I opened dresser drawers and dug through luggage, paying no heed to my additions to the mess. They would not notice. Minutes passed. Clothing flew. Papers hit the floor. My heart pounded. In retrospect, it was an overreaction, a fit of panic. But I did not recognize it as such in the moment. I was driven by pure survival like some feral animal under threat of predation. My last thought was to purge the bed, cut it open, and ensure there was nothing suspect there. No. Even in my heightened state, I had sense enough not to destroy Calcus' property. So, I stood still, breathing hard, in thought wondering if my fears were for nothing. By all appearances, these were strangers of absolutely no connection to me. Unexpectedly, thoughts of Nadia came to mind. What would she think of my prying, my paranoia? Glimmering light reflected off something in my periphery. I knelt over one of the bags, and peeking out between folds of clothes was a metal object. I took it in my hand and held it up. Before me was a brooch, a half-sphere meant to be worn on the lapel. Upon its face was inscribed some curious calligraphy surrounding a diamantine rock. I don't believe it was actual diamond, but I never found out exactly what kind of stone it was. The thing shimmered brilliantly, and I was rapt. Who could say how long I stared at it, half for amazement over the craftsmanship and half for determination. The feeling that I might recall seeing this symbol before. A family crest, maybe, or business icon. No such recollection came to me, and then the soft sounds of chant billowed in as if on a breeze, jolting me back to reality. I had to get back downstairs. This has been The Green Crow Inn, by Derek A. Kamal, read by Kalman Friedman, with music by Michael Elliott. To find out more, including how to purchase your copy of the novel, please visit shorelessskies.com.